and welcome to the Scottish Football Show. It's the end of the road for Stephen McLean as St Johnson bin him after just 19 games. Red Bull Killy? Imagine if the big money owners swooped in for Scottish clubs. Could be about to happen. And it's Halloween this week, but it's the festive fixtures that have got a few clubs up in arms. Welcome Scottish football fans. I am your host, Laura Brannan, standing in for Andrew, who's going through the feeding, milking, pooping cycle of a newborn child right now. I'm so glad you added in that it's of a newborn child and it's not just Slavin's lost all <laughs> control of being continent himself. Uh, yeah, yeah, he, he's 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 not ill. He's not ill. He's just got a baby. His partner's just had their second baby, so he's in full new dad mode. Anyway, sorry to interrupt, Laura. <laughs> yeah, I mean, introduced himself this week. I was going to say, thankfully, it's a no poop zone here in podcast world. <laughs> But I can guarantee that probably between the three of us, we've had probably the, as little sleep as Andrew has because we've all been working absolutely silly hours these last few days. I'm joined by not only Melbourne City's creative director, Finley Marks, it's also a warm welcome back to Sky Sports, Andrew Dixon. Hello to both of you. How are you both? Hello. Uh, yeah, uh, I am also very much on the tired bandwagon, not because of any children, but yeah, absolutely because of work. Um, this is the other end of the day from... Uh, a three o'clock rise for work this morning. But yeah, what better way to finish the day off than talking about Scottish football? Yes. And you've just started your day. <laughs> I have just started my day, yeah. Bright and breezy this morning. Um, you, you you refer to this as a poop-free zone, but we're always free and willing to talk shite, aren't we, Laura? So <laughs> let's get into it. <laughs> I feel like that's just a theme of our week. <laughs> right, we can uh, go straight into the news and funnies for this week. I think a lot's been happening, actually. So let's just delve straight into it. Let's start on a light-hearted note. Well, there's one that you've added into the running order, which I hadn't seen until this morning, which is a very, very sweet little video which you've just titled in the script on your cell, Dave Cormack, Laura. Do you want to tell us about this one? <laughs> I actually don't know what the context is of this. Somebody, I don't know where it is, somebody somewhere in Aberdeen. But Dave Cormack is just in this pub and not far from the bar. He's dancing with this little lady and um, they're just having the time of their life. They're just jigging away, having a great time. I don't know what time of day or night it is in this pub or how many pints deep anyone is, but it's just quite a sweet little video of Dave having a great time, having a wee dance. Just in my mind's eye, I was seeing that, you know, this this dance then progresses as the night wears on in this little pub into a full on the whole bar joining in for the slosh. There's definite slosh vibes. It, it's a very sweet little video. Okay, so going from the little nice cute story from Aberdeen to something not so good. I don't know if you've seen this, but Darren Fletcher's son, Tyler, is having a bit of an identity crisis. Yeah, he seems to be back and forth between Scotland, England, Scotland, England, Scotland, England, and Scotland, and then England. Um, I mean, you know what? Like, Obviously, in Scotland, it's more of a fight for us to get better players because there are less of us than there are of the English. You know, we just saw it recently with Anderson getting called up to the senior squad and then deciding that he had an injury and then deciding that actually he just fancies playing for England, which, you know, fair enough. If you qualify for more than one country, there is a decision to be made there. Um, but I think that's something that Tyler needs to be told, that there is a decision to be made there at some point. <laughs> um, that, that doesn't seem to be quite coming yet. Yeah, so he's so Darren Fletcher's got two boys, they're twins. Um, so Tyler and Jack are, you know, same parents, 
um born the same day same place the same egg if you want to go into the biology of it uh jack has well and truly made his mind up he is he's english and fair play to him he knows what he wants tyler though has been um so what was the, the run so far in the space of a year he has played for scotland and then he moved to england in november 2022 then he played for scotland in february 2023 against england by the way against his brother uh-huh. Then two months later in April, he played for England, won a cup with them. And now in October, he's now switched back to Scotland. So yeah, three times for Scotland and twice for England in the space of one year. <laughs> Come on, Tyler, you, you need to make your mind up here. It doesn't matter which one you pick, just going to just stick with your decision, please. <laughs> it's not a totally situation though, is it? Because I think Granite Shaka and his brother, um, obviously Granite plays for Switzerland and his brother's with, is it Albania, I think? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Albanian descent so it's not a totally unusual situation but um, I, I would imagine Tyler's wrestling with it a little bit and thinking oh well you know I need to follow in my dad's footsteps but deep down he's probably thinking I'm English though so <laughs> I can kind of see both sides of it. I think there was also um, did the Boateng brothers Jerome played for mm-hmm. Germany and for Kevin Germany. Prince played for Ghana. I think did they not actually play against each other at a World Cup as well so it's like you're saying just at a World Cup together but I don't yeah. know if they, they came up against each other. No, I can't remember. No. But no, it's, it's definitely not unusual. And as I say, fair play if they want to make their own minds up. But can I just stop switching? Can I just settle? This is what I keep saying. <laughs> settle when you sign your first pro contract at 16 and that's it. Just stick with it. It was quite funny when uh, when Alexis McAllister played against his brother uh, recently in the Europa League. There was so much stuff off the back of it. Like this is such a unique situation. Uh, you know, this has never happened before. Two brothers coming up against each other, and I was sitting thinking, "There's literally so many examples yeah. of <laughs> against each other." And you know, if we are rhyming off like more than one example of international brothers playing against each other at that level as well, it was just like a couple of weeks ago that Liam Kelly conceded a penalty to his own brother against Livingston. And exactly. It's, it's not that unusual. The McGinns are always playing against each other. Well, they were when John was still playing up here. It's absolutely fine. It happens all the time. The, Mc, the McGinns just go to all the same clubs, just at different exactly. points. They just exactly. follow each other around like a wee train. <laughs> You think I'm going to answer a stupid question like that? So straight into the news then, it was confirmed on Sunday that St Johnson have parted ways with Steve McLean and assistant Liam Craig. They lost 4-0 away to St Mirren at the weekend. And when you look back on the whole season as a whole, they've actually not won a single game. Uh, Their only win has actually come in the League Cup in the group stages at the very start. And that was a 4-0 win over Alloa. So ever since then, they've been struggling heavily. He's... 19 games as boss, won four, drawn six and lost nine since he took over from Callum Davison in April. So I I think those stats, I've seen worse ones. Finn, is it a wee bit harsh or was it a long time coming? I've said this before on the show anyway, that I, I'm always one for giving managers as much time as possible. But I, I mean, we had Greg Browning, uh, who's a St. Johnson fan and a, a betting analyst, football betting analyst, podcaster, on the show towards the start of the season, he was saying even at that early point of the season where there were only a handful of games into the league season, they'd already had a turgid League Cup campaign that he was just bracing himself for a really, really long season and that he felt between St. Johnson and Livingston, they were the kind of like two nailed on teams to be fighting out to avoid the drop this season. And you've got to say there have been 
one or two moments where you're like, oh, maybe they'll pounce on this. Maybe they can turn it around from this. But in the main, there just hasn't been the consistency, first and foremost, when they have had those moments. But just what we're seeing from them in games, I think defensively, they've not been solid, which has always been a marker of St. Johnson's sides over the last couple of years. That rigidity in defence has not been there. And they've always kind of struggled for goals. And that's been no different this season. So when, when you can't score goals and you're licking them in, it's not a good <laughs> recipe for for having a good league season, is it? So, yeah, it, it just seemed that there wasn't much changing from what's felt like a quite gradual decline over the past, well, two seasons since the season they won the cup double. It's like things have just been on a slippery slope all the way since then. And they don't look like having an upturn anytime soon. I think the thing as well is that when you start your season in the League Cup, and we've seen it from time to time where, you know, Premiership teams will lose to, to sides from, from further down the, the SPFL. But they'll, they'll do it once. You know, when you start your season with three defeats to, to teams from the lower leagues, that sets a terrible tone. And straight away, when you've had to fight the previous season to, to retain your top flight status, but then you start the new season and rather than push on from that and build on it, instead you're straight onto the back foot again, uh, you know, and even if you're you're starting from scratch in the league campaign, when you're coming into that off the back of a, a really poor run in the league cup, um, it doesn't board massively well. It doesn't do anything to build confidence. And that's been reflected by the, the league form. It's That's why they're, they're still sitting there with, with no wins. Uh, and it's why they're now sitting with, with no manager. You know, you have to change it. I, mean, I think the last time I was on the show, we talked about St. Johnson then. And mm. I felt at that point, um, you know, you were already seeing that you did the jump too soon with Callum Davidson. And I think we had a chat back then about, you know, St. Johnson fans would tell you, no, they didn't. It was time to change the manager. And perhaps it was, but when they made the change, they've clearly, they've not got it right. They've moved early enough. And, and we were talking before we started the, recording the podcast as well, that actually the teams from, I think, fourth down to 11th are only really separated by four points. So, mm. you know, if you get a couple of wins you can probably play yourself back into contention quite quickly and it's early enough in the season that they can still do that. Um, so I, I, I'm not massively surprised that they've moved now uh, and I think it's smart to move now, but I think they now have to be smart again and, and, and get it right and, and really do their homework. That episode, when we did speak to Greg Brown at the start of the season, Finn, if you don't want to listen to it, it's on YouTube. It's called Who's to Blame for St Johnson's Downfall? And interestingly, he actually touches on how it wasn't actually so much Steve McLean's fault, at least at that point of the season anyway, um, and how a lot of the problems were more behind the scenes. But one thing that kind of struck me was from the weekend's the post-match interview. Now, he he's very scathing in his um, post-match and personal about the players. This isn't the first time he's done this, because I remember we spoke about it a few weeks back and I actually supported what he said, saying mm -hmm. these players need to hear this sometimes, they need a reality check. But when he comes out and says something like they should be ashamed of themselves, they'll never play for me ever again, has he lost the dressing at that point? Is there any way back for a manager when he gets personal like that? I, I think when you're going to that level of language, yeah, I think you're right. That's that's endemic of something that's a, a bit more difficult to come back from. It, it's obviously a very emotional thing. And I, it, it, it must be so frustrating as a manager to know that you've got a good squad of players and to know that you can see moments where they're performing well and you do all the preparation and you know you, you think you've got yourselves ready, you might have turned a corner and then they go out onto the pitch and they don't deliver on a Saturday. It must be so frustrating. 
But that that's the job of a manager, right? Is that you come out and you say the things, you try and protect your squad, maybe give them a little push or a nudge when you need to. And I think that's what I, I completely agree with you when you were saying when he did it slightly earlier on this season. I think we all kind of said, you're oh, fair play. It's a bit of a boot up the arse to them to tr- see if you can elicit that kind of hunger and desire and that that kind of I'm going to go out and prove you wrong because that's that's what he's wanting from his players and I think as a player that's kind of player he would have been to respond to that but not all players do that Mm -hmm. and yeah I I think when you when you saw it was the manner of the defeat the manner of the performance to St Mirren and then when he's coming out and saying those kind of things post-match you just kind of you know that you get like that second sense as a football fan you're just like this is only ends one way and it's a question of when not if now um and obviously i haven't wasted much time but it's interesting trying to think about who who do you bring in at this point in the season you know who would be the kind of names and we've already seen stuff like david martindale was linked with it which i think is an unusual one because i think he's so ingrained at livy and would you want to move from livy to st johnson two clubs that are roughly about the same i was gonna say it's not really a step up in any way is it and 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 they're both kind of facing the same challenges this year yeah Yeah. i don't don't know if you would think about it in but then you look at the managers that maybe are out of work because martindale would be under contract so some of the other names mentioned robbie nielsen or billy dodds you know i just think in terms of temperament and the type of manager that st johnson tend to go for where they have had success steadying the ship good solid managers that know the game know that know that area of the country as well and the types of players billy dodds might be the one for me that that kind of jumped to the top of the list but yeah it's an important appointment for st johnson that's for sure yeah alex cleland taking interim charge there his first game will be midweek at home to kilmarnock Okay, moving on. Um, interesting story that came out over the weekend. The SFA are thinking about relaxing the rules that currently mean club owners can only be involved in the management, you know, administration of one club at a time. This change could see multi-club ownership models work their way into Scotland. The Daily Mail were reporting this um, and they claim there's been three approaches from owners of English clubs with even more expected in the future. I think one major fear from this is it could see our leagues flooded with fringe players from England. Andrew, is this a realistic fear if this happens? Do you know much about this side of things? I mean, I think the argument might well be that that happens anyway. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, like in London, I live in Wimbledon. Uh, AFC Wimbledon have currently got one of their defenders, uh, Will Nightingale, playing up at Ross County. You know, he's not played every game, but he's played quite a lot of games. And, and you know, he is very much a fringe player at AFC Wimbledon. So, you know, if you take that example, there are plenty of others. Do you know what? I think, why should we not get on board with that kind of thing? It, it's very Scottish football to moan about a lack of investment in it and, you know, moan about TV deals and moan about how, oh, you know, Belgium gets so much more money than we do and the Netherlands gets so much more money than we do and Norway gets so much more money than we do. On one hand, you do that, but then on the other hand, you say, oh, well, we can't we can't be going doing Red Bull Kilmarnock or something like that. We can't be <laughs> allowing that kind of thing to happen. Uh, yeah, we've got our traditions and, you know, we, we've got a lot of history in Scotland, more than an awful lot of countries, but does that mean that we shouldn't evolve and we shouldn't move forward with the times? Like, so many other countries are doing. I I really agree with you, Andrew. I think so much of the time we cut off our nose to spite our face. And I think that there's there's so much in Scottish football that is brilliant and it still has that kind of romantic uh, agricultural level of the game to it. 
something that I think has been lost at the top end of so many of the other games and through the Champions League. It's just, it's it's a, it's a franchise sport now, it feels like, in, on, in so many levels outside of Scotland. And I love that we've still got this core to our game that is heartfelt and genuine and it's traditional and there's all these wonderful elements to it. But I think sometimes we can, collectively as a nation, be so reticent to any change at the the expense of losing any of that, that we will just not entertain any idea of modernizing the game to a way that would bring in more money, that would market ourselves better, that would improve the standard of our football on the pitch potentially as well. And I think there's definitely an argument of, you know, we could just become feeder clubs, some of our teams for, for English clubs. But I would tend to look at it as more of not just players coming in. These This is things like expertise, knowledge, infrastructure that could be coming in as well from these groups. And say, for example, you know, like the, the group that owns Liverpool maybe want to buy Dundee or St. Johnson or something like that. You're telling me that those clubs with that level of expertise coming in would entertain some of the kind of fairly amateurish way that we go about promoting our games and looking at our after our players and fitness and tactics and all the rest of it. I, I can't see that not changing for the better. And it's the biggest criticism of our game in Scotland that we've had this duopoly for decades now and it doesn't look like ending anytime soon. How do you change that? going away from Celtic and Rangers winning basically everything and it would be a real shock that they don't. Surely it comes from investment going into other teams where they can bring in not just players, but infrastructure expertise, coaching staff to help them come up to a level that is more akin to that elite level, for want of a better expression, that probably Rangers and Celtic operate at in terms of revenues, player turnover, uh, European outlook, all of that stuff. So I think in, in the grand scheme of things, I, I I think it could be something that could be really, really good, really progressive for our game. You obviously, on the other side, want to be wary of stuff because I think the, the, the alarm bell that kind of was going off in my mind immediately as a Rangers fan was the whole Mike Ashley kind of owning Rangers in everything but <laughs> shares and name for a number of years and making a number of horrific uh, retailing marketing decisions there was the the Newcastle five that came in where they were basically forced to take on loan five Newcastle players uh, none of whom wanted to be at Ibrox like so I think that's what you want to be wary of but with fit and proper person testings with 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 it done the right way I think this could genuinely be a watershed moment for the Scottish game for the better to help improve the standard of our game across the country Plain devil's advocate, though, you mm. look at the likes of Newcastle, for example, who, right, okay, yeah, they've they've had a, a good kind of past. They're not anything incredible, but since they've had money ploughed into them, they're now a Champions League team, and you, you kind of you're starting to take it for granted now that they're successful. Would there be an element of grudging a team like, say, Hibs, for example, if they were suddenly up there challenging, but they were actually only able to challenge because they've had money ploughed into them? Would fans, neutral fans, or even fans of Celtic and Rangers, would there be a grudge there and be like, well, you're not a real challenge. You're a kind of tin pot challenge. You're a plastic challenge. Would the fans 
actually enjoy that from them? Or would they just see it as, yeah, great, there's a challenge, there's a third team challenging for the title. Great. I think it's it's a really difficult one to answer. And I think every fan will have their own opinion. It's again, because of the roots of not just the Scottish game, but the, the, the game in the British Isles, because it we've essentially invented the game. It's been around for 150, 160 odd years. And we very much love protecting this idea that we are the original curators. You know, we are the people where it is more authentic than anywhere else in the world because of the history, because of the tradition, because we feel ourselves to be more authentic football fans than somebody who just started playing FIFA and we're just like, oh, I love Messi. I want to be a Barcelona fan. And of course, there's an argument to that. But at the same time, you, I don't think it's fair to have a go at somebody else's level of support because in your eyes they don't support a team that's as authentic or has as good a history or as real a history as as you see as well um and it's all so this is something maybe i can speak into this just i work for melbourne city who as people will probably know is part of the city football group so that's the the owners of of manchester city who came in and have been there for, for over a decade and they've seen unbelievable success. And you're right, it's, it's like that kind of thing of, is it a plastic club? Because up until the point where the Abu Dhabi group came in, City didn't have a huge amount of success. I think one, one European trophy, a couple of league titles in history and that's it. But where they own a number of clubs, they don't own all of them outright and it's not a bottomless amount of money that goes into it. And Manchester City very much are at the top of the pyramid. That was that was the main thing there, the APO. EPL team, they're the jewel in the crown for the City Football Group. A team like Melbourne City, whilst being 100% owned by the City Football Group, it's not like there's a bottomless pit. Um, Melbourne City, as with a lot of the other clubs in the City Football Group, so this would be like uh, New York City, Lommel in Belgium, Trois in France, they own 20% in Yokohama F Marinos in, in Japan. These clubs aren't actually inherently rich clubs and it's not like they're just funded with a blank checkbook. They have to be run within their means. Um, and that's very much the the challenge at, at Melbourne City is that, and this is kind of what I was alluding to earlier on about the expertise and the knowledge that you get. The infrastructure is helped because they're thing like, well, this is how it runs at Manchester City. This would be the way that you would be best to run a football club and this is how you set up making yourself self-sustaining and doing all this stuff. But it's very much on those clubs like Melbourne City to make themselves self-sustaining. And so that's not, you know, throwing tons of cash at, at older retiring players. Very much the model for Melbourne City now is um, trying to bring in the best uh, youth players, both in, in Melbourne and Victoria. But um, if we can't bring them in, then we bring them in as young players from, from around the A-League. And then you see players, using a Scottish example, like Marco Tilio, who Melbourne City bought as an 18, 19-year-old from Sydney, gave him his break in the A-League. He played three seasons, was sensational, and then he uh, was an A-League record transfer sale to Celtic. And that then balances out uh, a lot of the operating costs for Melbourne City for the rest of the year. So I don't think it would be a case of like you're saying, an example of Hibs. Hibs are not going to be taken over by the Fenway Sports Group or something and given a blank checkbook and just like, right, you guys have got a, a, a I love the sun, the sun headline of like a war chest. It's like you've got £150 million to go out and spend whoever you want. It's not how it works. They will come in and try and improve the, the quality of all the off-field operations of a club 
in order to try and improve the on-field operations, be smart about, you know, looking for talent in lower leagues and other leagues around Europe that you can bring in this talent, nurture it and sell it on. Because that, that, that's the model that works for no matter how big a club is, Man City, Chelsea, Real Madrid, Barcelona, all of these clubs are looking for the best used players to sell them on for, for fees around. So I, I know that that's a concern, but I don't think that's how it would work out. It's not going to be like Red Bull Kilmarnock, as you said, Andrew. Um, <laughs> it's not going to be a bottomless pit coming in, but there's a lot of good, I think, that could come with it. The thing is, to answer your question, Laura, about um, about the Hibs example, I'm pretty sure if you ask Newcastle fans at the moment what they think about it, they're loving it and they're <laughs> delighted to be back in the Champions League. I watched the, uh, the Newcastle Paris Saint-Germain game uh, a couple of weeks ago, and honestly... The noise at St James's mm. Park was up there with anything I've heard in. Football. I was I was at that game. Yeah, I was covering that one, and it, the atmosphere was great. Uh, everyone was having a great time. So you know, you think back to sort of four or five years ago when Newcastle are in the Championship and they've been up and down a couple of times. You know, yeah, they've got Saudi investment now. Yeah, it's something a lot of people are uncomfortable with, but. I don't think there'd be very many people in Tyneside that are uncomfortable with it. Mm -hmm. I think for Scottish football, it's not so much a case of know your place, but certainly be realistic about what your place is. Um, you know, the, the, the idea of, oh, are we all just going to become feeder clubs? Well, is it such a bad thing if Man City or Liverpool or Man United or Arsenal or whoever it is, say to Dundee or Hibs or Aberdeen, right, we, we do want you to directly be a, a feeder club for us in the sense that we're going to give you our best young players. You're going to play on, uh, they're going to play on loan for you for a season or maybe two seasons. And then our, our aim after that is for them to come into our first team. That kind of arrangement happens anyway. It already happens. We've already seen players come to Scottish football from English clubs uh, and go back to England and do well. Occasionally they've stayed in Scotland that may well be the arrangement because what you might find is that a player comes from, say, Arsenal to Hibs and the, the plan is that they spend a season there with a view to going into the Arsenal uh, first team. Now, if it goes well, they'll go into the Arsenal first team, but the player might still do well at Hibs, but Arsenal look at it and say, he's not good enough for us, but he will still be good enough for Hibs because he's just gone and scored 25 goals in a season, for instance. So, you know, that talk of the idea of being a feeder club is delivered with this perception that it's a bad thing. It might not be. Are you going to lose your identity as a club? Probably not. It's still the same people that are turning up every week to, to cheer the team on. Behind the scenes, it's a lot of the same people that are still working there and have been there for years. Football clubs don't lose their identities just because they're bought over by you know corporates. It's up to Scottish football, and I think this is a good thing that the SFA are, are interested in relaxing it and, and considering doing that because what you're talking about, Finn, with you know us being custodians of the game and and you know having this rich history for 150, 160 years, that's fine, and the romantic element is fine. But you know if you look at the film, a shot at glory, that that is all very <laughs> romantic, right? But that is not what the future is for Scottish football. It can't be, but it might be. If you don't move with the times, yeah. it might be village teams with tiny little supports because all the money in football has gone elsewhere. As I said earlier, we complain about the TV deal. We complain about a lack of title sponsors for various competitions. If we want to progress, whether we like it or not, we have to move with the times. If we don't move with the times, the times will move away from us. 
and that is that is a big concern. So um, I think the SFA are to be applauded for for looking into this, for considering it. I think if it's done in the right way, as you touched on earlier on, the Mike Ashley situation at Rangers, if you guard against that kind of thing and you have the right measures in place with fit and proper persons, tests and what have you, I think it can be a very good thing for Scottish football. And I think it could be the shot in the arm that the game needs here. Yeah, you're right. Like, they're not going to come in and change a name. We, we were joking about Red Bull Kelly. It's, it wouldn't happen. They're not going to come in and actually change the name of the club. I think when there's the fear of youngsters flooding into Scottish football, there's still rules in place here. We can only have, I think it's seven loans. One club can have seven loans or something for the season. There's also a maximum of three per team now as well. So, for example, if the same owners that had Burnley then took over Falkirk. They could only send three of their players anyway on loan. I think the one fear that's maybe a wee bit more legit is if, say, for example, Burnley wanted to sign a player from Japan or something, couldn't get the work permit for him because he's only 18 years old, hasn't played in a first-team games yet, the idea for them might be to be like, OK, well, we can't sign for Burnley yet. Send him to Scotland. Send him to Falkirk get his games there because the thing is with the work permit situation in Scotland it's a lot easier to get players signed up a lot easier than it is in other countries so it is a lot more realistic for them to almost send players to Scotland to then trial them out see if they can cope with a season here and then if they're successful they can then buy them from Falkirk for example to then play in England so I think that's maybe where it becomes a wee bit insulting to say well we're just sort of the test lab and our country is sort of just the, they're not as good as us, so let's shove them over there first to see how they get on. We can work out the visa situation after that and then buy the player. I think that's the only kind of concern for me. But the thing is, we, we talk about, oh, they're going to get in instead of Scottish young players. Why are we not blooding their own players in? There's a very simple solution to that. Both can happen at the same time. Mm. You just need to put in, in place a rule where you have to play X amount of players under 21 who were grown homegrown in Scotland um, or such like. If you've got a, a minimum number that have to either be in your squad or in your starting lineup, then the two can work in tandem, surely. Absolutely. I, I think also, just as well to your point, like, oh, would we turn into like a, a feeder ground for work permits when they're coming through? Stuff like that's already happened in the past as well. I remember the, the young lads, he was actually playing for the Melbourne City youth team um, then he played for Melbourne City. Uh, Daniel Arzani was like, you know, the the next big hope of uh, Australian football. Was signed by Manchester City in 2018, and straight away was loaned to Celtic on a season's long loan. And it didn't work out very well because I, I think he broke his leg or did his ACL after one game, and, and and obviously didn't make any impact. And actually was ended up being released by by Manchester City at the end of his contract. Um, but even like last season as well, Grand Kual that, that that did six months at Hearts was the same thing. He was he was bought by Newcastle United and then immediately loaned out to Hearts for, for half a season. Wasn't a particularly successful loan spell, but these things are happening anyway. I completely agree with you. I think there should be safeguarding things put in. But I think you also tend to find that a lot of these clubs, for the vast majority of them, they want to be seen to not be coming in to completely rewrite everything in terms of, especially of their community assets and things like that as well. It's actually in their interest because it makes them look better if they're able to help cultivate local talent, the best in youth players in, in that locale or, or country, if you've got the resources to do that as well. So again, I think it could be something 
that could help improve the academies. Maybe not a, a club potentially like like Aberdeen or Hibs that might not need it as much, but maybe slightly further down the footballing ladder, Falkirk or Dunfermline or Wraith or something like that, where they actually have then the wherewithal and, and the support to build up these academies. I, I know it's a concern, but again, I, I just don't see it being as we're coming in, we're just making this a farm for England youth players um, or people that need work permits. I don't see it happening that way. You, you were saying as well, Laura, about it potentially being insulting. I honestly don't think it is insulting. Again, it comes back to what I was saying about being realistic about what our place is. You know, like, do St. Johnson and Livingston stand alongside Arsenal and Liverpool in stature? No, of course they don't. Are they bigger clubs than Bodo Glimt? Yeah, they are. I think you've got to be realistic about what the place is. So, again, if if you're going to be a feeder club as such... That's where we are. Uh, you know, Scottish football, the way it has been run for years and the way clubs have run themselves for years, have got themselves into that situation. It's up to Scottish football clubs to then get themselves out of that situation. Nobody's obliged to sign up to these agreements, you know what I mean? So yeah. we do know uh, that it's been suggested uh, Burnley are interested in Dundee. If they have talks, Dundee don't have to take the deal. Um, you know, if they're concerned about it being insulting for them or or something where they feel they're going to be undermined or they're going to play second fiddle to, to Burnley, they don't have to do it. But the option is also there for them to do it. And, you know, if they take the option to do it, that would suggest to me they don't find it insulting and that they feel that it's something that they can benefit from. You know, I mean, it's not just England as well. We're talking about English clubs. It could be that German clubs want to do it or French clubs want to do it or Italian or whatever it is. I, I don't think it should be viewed as a concern about just becoming a feeder place for England. I understand for a lot of Scottish people that the uh, you know the prospect of losing out to England and, and anything is uh, is galling. I get that, but our place, unfortunately, at the moment is not standing alongside the Premier League, and I think we have to embrace that and find our best way to improve. And I, I think this offers a an interesting and potentially very exciting way of doing it. And also, it's not just. Dual ownership equals feeder clubs. There's yeah. so much more to it, as you were explaining, Finn. So, yeah. Moving on to the fixtures, um, a <laughs> bit more of the kind of football side of things, again, uh, rather than the business side of stuff. The Christmas fixtures has been a hot topic this week. So Celtic, Rangers and Motherwell have all been complaining about the change in Christmas fixtures. The Motherwell versus Rangers game was meant to be played on the 23rd of December. It has now been moved, so it's the three o'clock kickoff on Saturday the 23rd of December. It's now been switched to a lunchtime kickoff on the 24th on Christmas Eve. And that's left Motherwell and Rangers not very happy about this situation. I think Rangers are complaining about the lack of, well, kind of limited public transport you'll get on Christmas Eve. Motherwell are not too happy about their hospitality because obviously a 12 o'clock kickoff cuts the amount of time you can sell alcohol before the match meanwhile Celtic are not too happy because their game away to Dundee was moved from the 27th of December to the 26th to Boxing Day I don't think Brendan Rodgers was too amused that Celtic have had seven away games on Boxing Day or at least the fixture straight after Christmas Day um, in a row which I was quite surprised by that stat but I mean my level of surprise goes as far as going I'm a bit surprised he thinks that somebody's um, up to tricks behind the scenes um, Andrew, is there a wee bit paranoia here or are these clubs, um, are they right to be a wee bit aggrieved by this? It, it's certainly peculiar that Celtic have had seven away in a row and that Rangers have had seven at home in a row, but 
I am sure also there will be other quirks of the fixture calendar where elsewhere the same thing will keep happening as well. Um, I mean, as much as Brendan Rodgers has put out that Celtic are away on Boxing Day the day after Christmas, Rangers are away the day before Christmas, um, which is inconvenient for quite a lot of people as well, I'm sure. But the games have to happen. They have to happen at various points. Um, The festive period as a whole is quite a busy time for football. So Christmas is the 25th of December, as we know. It's a Monday this year, so that means we've got a weekend right before Christmas Day. We've got a weekend right before New Year's Day as well. So the way it pans out, you've got a stretch of about 10 days where I don't know exactly how the games work out, but there'll be like, you know, what, three rounds of games, four rounds of games in there. Everybody will be at home, everybody will be away. It's during the holiday season. I don't think it's the great big thing that requires the Celtic manager or any other manager to say, I think there's tricks at play here. Everybody's got to play every day at some point and they are all playing some games over Christmas. They are all playing at home and away at various points. Deal with it. Right, I'm going to, I'm going to jump in because I'm having experience of work at clubs over Christmas time. Um, firstly, my take on the, rain, the Motherwell Rangers game. I think the limited transport complaint from Rangers for fans on Christmas Eve isn't Really, I think that's clutching at straws because it is a lunchtime kickoff. Everyone's going to be out and about at that point anyway. Most guys go out and do their Christmas shopping at that point, so that it's not like it's a bank holiday um, and the transport shut down. From Motherwell's perspective, I think it's quite naive to complain about the hospitality side of things. When you look at the fixture list um, at the start of the season, you only get the TV schedule up to a certain point, and then they start feeding out the later ones. So we're finding out in October that the, the the TV schedule for December is two months in advance. Now, anyone <laughs> with half a brain should look at that fixture list in, in June when you get them and go, oh, Motherwell against Rangers on a Saturday at three o'clock. Well, that's not going to stay at that time because historically Motherwell hosting Celtic or Rangers gets moved to lunchtime kickoff because of TV more times than not. So to not already have that in your contingency plan is mm-hmm. quite poor to start with. Now, if you work in football, you have to be prepared to not have a Christmas, by and large, um, especially if you're in the football side, of, the football coaches or yeah. playing side of things. I've worked at clubs in, in Scotland. I worked at Celtic for four years. I worked at Mullow for four years. And the amount of times I've worked on Christmas Eve, I'd say more times than not. Boxing Day, again, more times than not. I worked on the 1st of January once as well. It's not uncommon. When it comes to the playing side of things, players work on Christmas Day. And it is just a standard. They know they do. They, they train on Christmas Day because they've got a game on Boxing Day. Yeah. What they tend to do is they will maybe get Christmas morning off. They'll go in for a light session and then they'll go to the hotel for their game on Boxing Day. Or they'll maybe do a light session in the morning and then get the rest of the day off and then go and join up at the hotel. And it depends on who their team is and where they're playing the next day. But you're going to play, you're going to be working on Christmas Day if you work for a football club in the football side of things. To complain that you've got an away game, it doesn't inconvenience really anyone apart from the, the players and coaches. In terms of like well, my role in the media, I didn't work on Christmas Day just because there was a Boxing Day fixture. I sure as hell went up to Dingwall on Boxing Day though, <laughs> one year. So if you want to complain about the, the distance of travel, <laughs> um, Motherwell versus Rangers is not a hard one. And even Dundee versus Celtic, it's, it's, it's not the best. I had an away game against Dundee United with Motherwell a couple of years ago. Going to Dundee on Boxing Day. Look, it's not what anyone wants. People want to be sitting on their couch, 
tucking into pigs and blankets and in their pajamas watching Christmas movies all day. I get it. Of course we do. But on the flip side of that, and especially now as somebody who lives in London who goes home for Christmas, and I'm planning now what dates I'm going to go home for and get off work around that time of year, I'm now looking at the fixtures going, right, when can I go to a Motherwell game? When can I go to any other game that's on? I want to go to games now. And I look forward to that. So there's a lot of people like me who are going to be going home and the, the crowds are great at Christmas time because families are back together and it does become an event. So all of a sudden it's, yeah, you want to go out on Boxing Day to go to the game because you've not been to that ground for quite a few months. So I I feel like it's just football people that work at clubs that kind of have a wee bit of a gripe about this, but they should be used to it because it's not unusual. Also, just to say, I don't really know what Celtic are complaining about because you look, that's this will be their seventh Christmas away straight after Christmas the last six that they've done so far they've won every single game so it's not it's not like it's something that's given them a disadvantage playing away from home it it, it just seems like a bit of an odd one to go for also like you said earlier on Andrew these things balance out over the course of the season it's like if you're away <laughs> at this point you're going to be home at another point like well, they're going to be they're going to be home before christmas and what what do you prefer christmas eve off or boxing day off yeah, exactly off, you're going to have one or the other and also you know if brendan's talking about people doing things behind the scenes is this the same random fixture generator that always seems to bring an old firm game as the first match after rangers have got a really difficult European qualifier every season, regardless of when that happens in the season. I don't, it's just these things, there's always going to be things that put out your club over another at a certain point of the season. And like, I, I guess, well, Rangers fans are terrible for it as well because they always get to Christmas and they're like, oh, we've got to go away to Easter Road and Patoji over Christmas. It'd be like, everybody's got to do that. Just get on with it, play the games, win as many as you can, and stop moaning about it. There we go. <laughs> goes the full-time whistle St Mirren cruise to another comfortable win plenty of reasons to smile in Paisley it finishes St Mirren 4 St Johnston 0 okay let's get straight into rounding up the weekend action looking back on what happened and I think there's only one place to start here because well it was the final nail in Stephen McLean's coffin but let's uh, look at the submitting side of things here like they won 4-0 at home against the Perth side they're still doing amazing I feel like we're saying it every week but um, Finn, they're they're flying, they're flying high, and Stephen Robinson has still still got them on fire, hasn't he? The thing that's impressed me most about it, and it's always the challenge to any team outside the Rangers and Celtic, it's just a question of consistency. And I, I think, by and large, if you can find a decent level of consistency, it sets you up so well. Like you alluded to earlier on, Andrew, like the gap between I think it's four, fourth and and ninth in the tables, like four points or something. A couple of wins here or there can really propel you. And, and that's fine in the scraps for, for a lot of the other places in the table. But if you want to try and nail on a European spot, you have to have a good level of consistency. We saw that a few years ago with Kilmarnock, when they were able to maintain that level of consistency and regularly take points off, not just the old firm, but the other teams round about them in the table at that level. And St Mirren are showing this season that they can do that which just stands them in good stead because, you know, when we looked at the start of the season, Motherwell had had such a cracking start to the season and and them and Motherwell were kind of neck and neck, you know, pushing Celtic over the first couple of weeks of the season. Motherwell since have, have dropped off a little bit and they're kind of mid-table in that, that, that middle squished pack in the middle of the table. St Mirren have been able to continue on that good form from the start of the season. And that's what I mean about the consistency. 
And as long as that goes on, the better their season's going to be. And hopefully as well, that translates into the cup competitions as well. It'd be good to see them going deep into the cups. But just what what a job Stephen Robinson's doing there. I think we'd said this because we had him on as a guest a couple of weeks ago. And again, we pushed to the YouTube channel. You can find the full chat that we had with Stephen Robinson there. But when we got off the call, Laura, obviously you've worked with him at Motherwell, but I, it was the first time I'd met him in, in, in person. And when we came off the Zoom call, I was just like, I want to play for him at St. Mirren. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm 38 with a dodgy knee. Like, I didn't, should be nowhere near a football pitch, but I would run through a brick wall for Stephen Robinson. So I can see why with the squad that he's got and the players that he's got around about them, a lot of them are players he's worked with before as well at Motherwell or other places. It's such a good culture they've got there. It's brilliant to see clubs like St. Mirren or Kelly a few seasons ago really pushing at the top end of the envelope, I think, of what they can achieve in, in, in a league season. Yeah, goals there from Keanu Bacchus, Mikel Mandron, two for him, and Greg Kilty getting about it. He kind of mentioned a wee bit there about Kelly doing so well in previous seasons and taking points everywhere. Took the points again this weekend, 2-0 win over Aberdeen. Andrew, how are Kilmarnock fourth? What is going on? Is this the Derek McKinnis syndrome? Well, do you know what I mean? Derek McInnes, um, you know, he's been at Kilmarnock for a good while now. I think he's had the opportunity to uh, instill what he wants in his team. Um, and that's a great result against Aberdeen today. I mean, like, Rugby Park is a place that Aberdeen, I think, historically haven't always done particularly well there. Mm. You know, occasionally they'll get a result. But but Kilmarnock against Aberdeen at home have, have got quite a good record. So I wasn't massively surprised to see that result, um, particularly off the back of what happened with Aberdeen in midweek in the, in the European tie as well and the disappointment that they encountered there. But, you know... Forgetting all of that, Kilmarnock still have to go out and do a job. Derek McInnes is a good manager, better than he gets credit for in, in some areas. Um, and, and that's been reflected by some of the results. You mentioned there the Aberdeen uh, defeat in Europe midweek um, to Palk. I just want to touch on this briefly. I know it happened quite a few days ago now, but the the VAR decision, the lack of VAR decision to look at the foul on Jack McKenzie in the box. Now, the score at this point was 2-1, could have extended their lead to 3-1. Now, this is, without doubt, the biggest turning point in a game recently, with exception to Scott McTominay's goal in Spain, which, um, mm. again, was thanks to VAR. <laughs> Barry Robson said afterwards, We'd be as well getting rid of it because it's just not doing its job properly. This was a scandalous decision, wasn't it, not to give Aberdeen a penalty? It was pretty grim, I've got to say. And if it, it, that's just taking the incident in isolation where you look at it. You look at it in real time and you're like, oh, there's got to be something there. You look at it on the replays and you're like, oh, well, definitely it's a penalty now. And it's not given. So that that's hard enough to take for Aberdeen fans. What is just salt into the wounds is that essentially I'd say an even weaker version of that foul is then given as a VAR penalty in the 96th minute for, for Pauk. That's the killer. Which essentially puts them out of Europe, which just kills our whole competition, doesn't it? It does. And it, but again, as harsh as this sounds as well, that's part of the learning curve of playing in European football. And I, I don't just mean from you know a player diving or getting a penalty or whatever. There's no argument that those definitely turned the game Aberdeen firstly not getting what I think was a stonewall penalty and then getting essentially the same one but weaker given against them. But on on top of that as well, I I don't think Robson got his substitutions right. And and also as well, when you're 2-0 up at home against anyone, doesn't matter who it is, when you're 2-0 up at home against anyone with 12 minutes to go, 
you have to be able to see the game out. I was even like, I was kind of shocked by watching him. Not shocks, maybe a bit too strong, but you guys like Johnny Hayes came on as a sub and he just looked like he didn't know what he was doing. I'd be like, you've played in massive European games, not just for Aberdeen, but for Celtic as well, at the highest possible level. How do you not know how to be the calm head on the pitch to help the players that have not been in the situation before know how to get out of the game and see it out from here? It's just, I mean, it's it's a it's a rough one, a rough one for Aberdeen to take, especially when it has the consequence of basically, to all intents and purposes, knocking them out of European football now for the rest of the season. They just have to try and um, get back on the wagon. I mean, we, we saw with Hearts last season, they, they just about did it. I mean, they didn't have quite the, the finish for the season that they would have wanted, but they were just about to keep level pegging in the league with the European football midweek and, and going back to league business at the weekend. Aberdeen have really struggled with it. And it's it's tough, but you just you just need to get used to doing that. You, you need to roll your sleeves up and get yourselves back on the horse. Um, there are easier places to go than Rugby Park, I think, as Andrew says. But yeah, as, oh man, it's just it's a pretty rough patch of the season for them right now. Yeah, speaking of which, check out last week's episode. We spoke to Des Roach, former referee, uh, just to celebrate the one-year anniversary of uh, VAR being introduced to Scotland. So check out last week's episode and see if he thinks it's been a success so far. Um, Also, speaking of... um... Masons. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of Masons, let's talk about the Rangers game. (laughs) Good to see they were out in full force this weekend. That's a joke. That's a joke for anyone listening. (laughs) Speaking of throwing away the lead, um, it wasn't just Aberdeen. Um, Hearts on Sunday, this is a bit of a killer one for them. Leading 1-0 for most of the game at Ibrox. It was a game of two penalties, wasn't it? That uh, eventually closed the gap on Celtic at the top of the table to just five points. I just want to be up front. They were, they were both penalties. I, I Like watching them back, you just... I woke up this morning because the game was at two o'clock in the morning my time. So I, d- I didn't watch the game. I've seen the highlights back and it's just like, oh, here we go. When you see like Rangers got a penalty here and they missed it and then they got another penalty in the last minute. You're just like, oh, you're right. Okay, here we go. Just just to, just to clarify. So so Tavernier missed the first one. It cracked he off did. the bar. So it, it cracked post. off the post. Yeah. And then the second one he converted. So just for clarity there. So it wasn't, they yeah. didn't score both our penalties. No, they weren't both penalties. But um they, they, they were both st- I, I don't know what the Hearts defender was doing cutting across Todd Cantwell for the first one and I don't know what Peter Haring's trying to do what is he doing pulling Goldson's jersey the second time it's dumb it's absolutely dumb and they were both penalties so yeah I, I think with the XG Rangers were almost up about four for the XG so Hearts scored early and then it was the Alamo basically from that point they, they didn't offer an enormous amount going forward they they do play some nice football but they just it was especially second half was just banks behind the ball so yeah you're saying about XG Finn I mean it's, I think I've still to adapt to XG and get excited about <laughs> I think for, you know by and large I, I, I look at the score um, yeah. and, <laughs> and the performance while Rangers were dominant it was a pretty tough watch again. I was at the, the Rangers Hibs game last week. Um, I watched the Sparta Prague game. I watched the game against Hearts as well. Uh, so I've seen all three games under Philip Clement, who, in fairness to him, can only play the hand that he's dealt at the moment. It's not his squad. It's not his players. Um, he has, however, now had three games where he's started Cyril Dessers up front and Sam Lammers in midfield. And for me, particularly Lammers, needs to be out of that team. Mm. Rangers are effectively playing from the start of matches with nine players 
nine and a half. Dessos puts a little bit more into it, but but both of them are not contributing. Rangers under Michael Peel evolved into a team that just played safe football and knocked it around the back constantly and didn't really penetrate. And they very much got away from that against Hibs last week. But then against Sparta Prague for more than an hour in, on Thursday night, how Sparta didn't go in front, I'm not entirely sure. And uh, for all that Rangers dominated and had a lot of possession and actually had quite a lot of uh, attempts and goal. I think they had 20 attempts and goal against Hearts. Only five on target though. And that is for me is, is quite a telling stat as well. They're still... A, a way to go for uh, Clement's team and Clement. I'm quite sure as the weeks go on, will you know he'll he'll get more out of his players. He's he's clearly questioned already why so many players are injured. He's questioned the fitness levels. So I've no doubt things will improve in time. But um, at the moment, it's about grinding it. And I suppose from that point of view, uh, credit to Rangers for at least getting over the line because while it was a difficult watch, they didn't give up. They did show a bit of character and getting that penalty and scoring in the 90th minute clearly then gave them confidence to to, to go on from that and get the three points. Game of the day on Saturday. Uh, was it for Park? Well, I say game. Um, I think we should just ignore the first 65 minutes of this match. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then it lit up um, after that. Ironically, I actually left the house at si- about 60 minutes because I was away to CS Club 7 on Saturday night and I missed the last half hour of this match. Um, <laughs> so that was a bit annoying. But... <laughs> It was good to listen to in my ears. Uh, Mika Berith, I want to just kind of give him a mention. He came back from injury and was on the pitch four minutes and before he won a penalty and converted it. He also then went on to set up Wilkinson and it was young Luca Ross making his first appearance at Fur Park with the 94th minute stab home. He's still only 17. He's still got his braces and he looked like he didn't have a clue what to do when the ball went in the back <laughs> of the net. <laughs> so it was a nice moment for him. A lot more for him to come in the future, I think. Uh, elsewhere at Livingston, Dundee with the visitors, they won 2-0. It was another late show there with Joe Shaughnessy. Joe Shaughnessy, Joe Shaughnessy can't say his name. Uh, like, uh, the late Joe Shaughnessy double that uh, actually got Dundee up to fifth. So, I mean, the, the table's looking actually... Quite class just now. You've got St Mirren, Comark and Dundee on the top six. Who would have put their money on that by Halloween? And the last game from the Premiership was Hibs nil, Celtic nil. And we'll just move on from that because uh, I don't think any of us is going to have much to say about a goalless draw when the drama happened in the Championship, Finn, didn't it? Yes, obviously, as it always does because it's the best league in the country. <laughs> Dundee United racking up another enormous victory. They just, you said it last week or the week before, Laura, like they very much look like a premiership team <laughs> trapped in the trapped in the championship so they're they're just eviscerating a lot of the teams that are playing at the moment but no the the, the best game was the uh, the Fife Derby Wraith Rovers beating Dunfermline 1-0 um, Sam Stanton with the the min- the winner in the 93rd minute which was it's, it's a brilliant game great advert for for the championship great advert for Scottish football some tasty scenes on and off the pitch with the fans and stuff like that but um I, I just like how much bite there is in in in, in the Fife Derby. It's you, we've seen the crowds for Wraith and, and particularly for Dunfermline. They've been excellent in the, in in the last few seasons. But it, I, I did love <laughs> after the game. I don't know how many people saw this on on Wraith Rovers Twitter. They put out a full time graphic saying one uh, full time one nil Wraith Rovers. We remain in second place as Dunfermline dropped to eighth, and then they've commissioned a cartoon kind of graphic of a Wraith player sitting on a on a golden throne with Kyle Benedictus and one of his teammates kind of kneeling before him. I was just like, that is 
another like level of sweet, aren't they? Yeah, that is like a level of shit. Like, could you imagine if one of the teams in the old firm did that? Like, it's the fact this has been done before the game. Nobody yeah. made that up in the ninety third minute when the ball nope. went in the back of the net. This is um, premeditated shithousery, which in many circumstances is the best. And I am very much in the camp of. Do not do anything that can come back and haunt you in the next match, which could come soon because they've just drawn each other in the Scottish Cup third round. So, um, <laughs> Dunfermline, get yourself ready because I think that was a wee bit cheeky. Um, elsewhere in League One, Falkirk and Hamilton, they've continued their race at the top. Falkirk beat Alawa 3-0, Aki's winning away to Montrose by the same scoreline. There's only two points split them at the top and they're miles ahead of Kelty Hearts. They sit third on 17 points, 12 off the top. Some mental results in the Scottish Cup, though. Um, second round. Andrew, did any catch your eye that were just a bit like, what? Did, did that actually happen? Yeah, I mean, Elgin City uh, have gone into the bunker and are not coming out <laughs> after losing, <laughs> <laughs> losing 6-0 um, to, was it Genefield Swifts, I think it was, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. I think that is the biggest non-league beating league result in the Scottish Cup for something like 127 years, there or thereabouts. Uh, yeah, an absolute thrashing. I, I, I did see one of the kind of the, the local journalists up in, uh, who covers Elgin for the Press and Journal saying that um, <laughs> it was actually quite a frank admission. He was basically saying, I can't get hold of anybody. He <laughs> 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 was talking to him about it. So, yeah, quite a few big score lines. Um, I think East Kilbride were beating 7-0 as well, uh, which yeah. was um, a bit of a surprise. And do you know the Scottish Cup at, at this stage of the competition does throw up something like that? There, there, there weren't too many results that you looked at it and thought, yeah, that's how I thought it would have gone if you'd asked me before the game. So that very much keeps it interesting in the early stages of the competition. I think the other game that stood out to me was Dumbarton being 2 0 down to Banks of D until fairly late on. Uh, Banks of D are, are, are one of those sides that have actually had decent runs into the Cup and in, into later rounds over the last couple of seasons. So a good side. Dumbarton scored in the 97th minute and then like the 102nd minute so like 90 plus 12 of injury 90 12th minute and uh, ended up winning at 3-2 so I unbelievable drama the, the one that blew my mind was East Kilbride getting cuffed 7-0 by Trinent like that, that's because you think of East Kilbride as one of the better sides in the lone league but yeah that's an absolute doing there's some tasty ties coming up in the next round though yeah, there is. I think the kind of well, I think the obvious ones the Fellman versus Ray Rovers, that's a great tie. Partick Dissel against Queen's Park. I feel like they play each other every second week. <laughs> and uh, Queen of the South versus Dundee United. I think they are some tasty ones because that that rules out some pretty big teams before the cups even properly got up and running. Um mm. to be yeah, so that's um there's some tasty ties. Just looking ahead to the week, there's obviously a midweek card coming up over Tuesday, Wednesday, but the big ones uh, over the weekend, we've got the League Cup semi-finals. So Hibs against Aberdeen on Saturday and then it's Hearts against Rangers on Sunday. Quick quick prediction, who's going to be in the final? Uh, Rangers game aside, I've been quite impressed by Nick Montgomery since he came in at Hibs and I just think with Aberdeen being on a pretty ropey run of form recently and they tend to be a club that can't shake off bad results or damaging results in the last couple of seasons anyway. My money would be on Hibs for that one. If Rangers play anything like they have over the last couple of weeks, it will be a very close game. Uh, but I don't think Hearts have got a particularly good record at Hamden, especially against the old firm. So my money would be on Hibs and Rangers getting through the semis, but you never know what happens. 
That's all from us then, folks. Hopefully next week Andrew will be back. Take me off hosting duties. <laughs> but in the meantime, let us know if you're enjoying the show. Leave us a review. Go and watch us on YouTube. Please know I don't always present, so don't hold it against us. And uh, <laughs> we'll see you next week. Now you can go and listen to something else. Bye.